Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast which requires me to eat outstanding food whilst chatting to equally outstanding guests. Anyone offended by passionate opinions, eating noises and expletives strategically deployed, well, you may be in the wrong place. One of the good things to come out of these challenging times is that we've been able to talk and to eat with people across the globe thanks to the magic of video link. And my guest today is literally on the other side of the planet. He's an actor, writer, composer and comedian, although now based back in his native Australia, he was thrust into the spotlight-winning Best Comedy Newcomer at the Edinburgh Festival in 2005. Amongst his many achievements, he's the composer and lyricist of Matilda the Musical, which won a Tony Award and was Grammy-nominated. And he's now about to release a new studio album called Apart Together. It's the fantastically talented Tim Minchin. Yeah, I definitely like have tried to write myself into a position where rather than just see me as a sweaty ginger clown, maybe you see me as someone that maybe some people might have wanted to sort of see in the nude. Well, you tell me what to do. The food just arrived just as I was coming to the peak of a spiritual argument with Russell Brand. Not an argument, a, a, an intense conversation. The doorbell rang. I'm like, Russell, I'm about to conclude the universe, but I need to go to the door to get Jay's dinner. And it's sitting here in bags. So basically, Russell has been my support act, which I think is kind of the way it should be. You should always have Russell open for you when you do <laughs> yeah, these interviews. He's the entree. Before I get into the food, I, I, I just want to sort of throw one question at you. Yeah. I've listened to the, to the album extensively. I'll Take Lonely Tonight, one of the singles, oh, yeah. is a very sort of touching emotional account of you staying monogamous, declining sex. And the question, and it's a subject you've talked about in a number of ways, mm. the temptations um, mm. when you're in a long marriage as you've been. And the question that came to mind was this. Just how much sex have you been offered when you've been on the road? Not much. Enough to make me think, i got to unpack this because it's really complicated. Um, no, I think it was, <laughs> you it a lot. I think people sometimes think that you make art because it's something you need to say. I tend to make art because I think it's rich ground, you know. Um, it's good material. Monogamy, or at least the idea that love, as opposed to being a fated thing that you live happily ever after with, is actually something that you constantly have to re-choose. I feel like it's profound and beautiful, but also hard, like life, profound, beautiful and hard, and needs to be unpacked more in stuff. And I feel like I'm the guy to do it because I've you know, made a living from being sort of uncomfortably honest about stuff and being more flattering to myself. I made a living out of trying to find beauty in quite brutal interpretation of a meaningless universe, yeah. Although it has to be said that Sarah, your other half, yeah. did suggest to you that uh, underlying all of that very profound and very important stuff was uh, a desperate desire to make sure that you appeared fuckable to other people. Yeah, I definitely like <laughs> I tried to write myself into a position where rather than just see me as a sweaty ginger clown, maybe you see me as someone that maybe some people might have wanted to sort of see in the nude. Every artist ever is driven by ego really i mean i i try not to be and i write about lots of different things and from lots of different people's points of view but to the extent that i write about my own life it's it's all bollocks so every 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 version of myself i present to the world is a is an exercise in self 
branding. I mean, that's the case with anyone who's ever tried to sell themselves as something in the public domain. Doesn't matter how alt, they're just presenting an idea of themselves that they think is more consumable. Well, now listen, this is called Out to Lunch or In for Lunch. One of the rare gifts of COVID is that we've developed this possibility of interviewing people a long way away who couldn't come into a restaurant. Yeah. So I asked you for your dietary, if you had any dietaries, yeah. and they were very specific, strawberries and olives. Well, I, um, just, I don't not like much stuff, so I just sort of tell you the stuff that makes me go, ugh. Um, so do you mind if I ask you about cheese? Given you did do a six minute and 54 second uh, song That's with a full orchestra. Short version. Because I saw you do it at the Royal Albert Hall. Great gig. Thanks. Um, I love cheese. It just doesn't love me. Do you yeah. do you have a cheese problem or have you stolen that uh, cheese cheese issue from someone else? I definitely have had periods of my life where I've eaten so much cheese that I'm incredibly uncomfortable at, yeah, right. at, at, at come bedtime. Um, I'm not particularly <laughs> lactose intolerant, but... But you can't underestimate how how much I like cheese. So I am a, I'm able to eat myself into trouble with cheese. Okay, it's been a well, few years no, since I've done that. No cheese whatsoever. So what you've got, uh, you've, you've got delivery from. I'll, I'll be absolutely honest, and they've been fabulous. It's a restaurant called Dingo Dining on oh. James Street in Fremantle, um, wow. run by a chef called Lee Nash, who ran Vans in oh. Cottesloe. Wow. Uh, and then has segued into making fermented chilli sauces and has now opened up. So you've got, you should have a bag. I'll tell you what you've got in there. More food than you, well, I don't know. Maybe you can work your way through all of this because I've thrown loads at you. There's buttermilk chicken bao bun with smoked sriracha aioli with house pickled veg. There's twice cooked sticky beef ribs. Oh, with wow. Hot fra- with hot and fragrant magic dust. I've no idea what that is. You'll have to tell me. Uh, with a papaya salad with sweet fish sauce and sticky rice, a dry miso ramen. I think if it's a dry miso ramen, it's basically noodles with local oh shiitake and king God, I'm literally not going to have... Oh, yeah, dry ramen noodles, sticky rice yeah. beef. And you're about and, to say uh, sweet corn donuts. Uh, yeah, sweet corn donuts with miso salted caramel, raspberry and lime chilli jam with their own buttermilk and popcorn ice cream. Um, and I... Uh, I've gone to a local Thai place down here in Brixton called Kawasan, which I like very much, and I've often got a takeaway from. So you can hear my bag coming up. So we'll both be eating sort of from that corner of Asia. One of the one of the things we're connected by is pianos. Mm. We actually met in person because did you uh, did you hire a rehearsal room or a room from place. King's Place? Mm. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and you would occasionally we'd we'd meet by the coffee bar. On the ground floor, because King's Place is where the Guardian Observer offices are. Uh, The reason I ask is uh, the the piano as object has, I think, played quite a part in your life. Upright, the series that's recently been broadcast both here and in Australia, has as one of it, I think of it as a character, the upright piano that you are transporting, well, your character, Lucky and the Young Woman Mega, travelling across Australia. Mm. Did it start with you, the idea for Upright, or were you brought on board with somebody else's idea? I was brought idea? on board. It was Chris, Chris, a guy called Chris Taylor, who's well-known down here for comedy and stuff, had a very uh, embryonic idea, really just an image of a guy with a piano in the desert. They came up with this character, Meg, this teenage runaway, who um, it ends up being an odd couple road trip, right? And when I came on board we got into the process and realised that actually the story had a lot of uh, scaffold that could bear a lot of weight, actually, because if you're going to take a, an object, a burden across the desert to, to your hometown where you haven't been for a long time, then you've got to ask why. Why hasn't he been home? 
out of the examination of those possible answers, you suddenly have story and it's magical to be a part of actually. It's really great. It, it, it does also tie in with a theme related to the album out November 20th. Upright was pitched as a comedy, but then it went in other directions. It's still funny, but it's it's a drama which happens to have funny moments. Apart Together may surprise quite a lot of your fans because it is not a Tim Minchin, I'm going to kick you in the ribs with a gag or a heresy, or it's a lot of very emotional songs. I, uh, the blunt way is to say, are you, are you, are you done with being funny? No, I think what I'm done with is forcing myself to be one thing or the other. Um, I, I love that, especially people in Britain enjoyed my shows and, and I'm, I don't suppose I'll ever get over the fact that when I get on stage, I tend to really want to make people laugh. To what deg- degree do you think Matilda is the thing that enabled you to put your hand up and say, well, actually... Yeah. I'm not just that. Yeah. I've got a Grammy nomination. Fuck you very much. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I think it was a big part of it. I've certainly lent on that. And, and Matilda's success made me think, oh, I can be involved in collaborative works that have long-term positive effects on the world without me having to show up and drink too much and be a bad daddy. Maybe I, I sort of thought I should grow up a bit and um, I'll, I'll always gig and stuff, but I want to try and direct this and I want to, you know, and I was working towards getting back to acting all along, slowly, slowly doing a play in Sydney and then Jesus Christ Superstar and then a small role in an Australian drama and then a, a bigger role in an American comedy and just making sure I didn't take anything too big for my chops, you know. Um, how's your food, by the way? It's so what you, what, good. I'm on the beef. What, I looked at yours and went, bloody hell, that looks good. You need to be um, a dingo, yeah. Need to be a, I, I worried about that name. Should I, have, should I have worried? Was it in some way a parody of Australianness? When you first said you've ordered from Dingo Dining, I thought, oh, my God. Jay's okay. gone and got a takeaway from some Aussie theme restaurant. <laughs> But that I was my concern. Maybe they're near the dingo flour mill. There's this huge dingo oh. flour mill, old flour mill with a big red, very famous, iconic red dingo. And I suspect it's connected to that. Right. That makes absolute sense. Oh. Um, I'm glad it's really good. Um, how difficult was it to go from a sense of obscurity and not necessarily much money? Yeah. And then you go off to Edinburgh. I don't want to be too Broadway about it. And you came back a star. You get the Perrier Award for Best Newcomer. Was that hard? It was incredibly stressful. Interesting. I went, I'm going to do everything I can to make people come and see this show. And I'm going to make sure every show is the absolute best thing. You know, I did not go going, it'll be a laugh. We'll have a piss up. I'm going to, you know, schmooze in the bar. I didn't drink much at all because I was so worried about my throat. I sucked so many propolis lozenges that I went home and had to have eight fillings. I, I was, the whole point about Edinburgh is if, if you get the very, very lucky sort of break that I got, you sort of have a career in a month. You get a fan base, then you get a backlash of contemptuous, you know, everyone says this is good and some arsehole, you know, writing a review, you know, just picking at why I'm not all that. And then you sort of get the nominations come out 
and you know everyone had said I'd been nominated for the main award and then I was nominated for the newcomer and I didn't really know what that meant and I thought it was a rejection and I was just unable to just chill and go for the ride and to be fair on me it really freaking mattered in that month I made decisions that have affected me forever you know I have to say the ability to be in Edinburgh and stay sober I don't mean in a kind of pathological way, no. but just not to get into it. If, if you haven't been to the Edinburgh Festival, sadly didn't happen this year. Um, but when it's at its full pelt, yeah. it isn't, it, it's as much a, a social event punctuated by people being on stage. And that must have taken staggering reserves of self-control. I wasn't there for fun, you know, and in hindsight, I should have been able to be... Should you have had more fun? I should have been a bit more present in the moment. I had I had nights. I mean, there's a video on the internet of Geraldine Quinn and I singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah on the final night at the Gilded Balloon, which remains um, a, a lovely monument to a moment for me. Um, and I'm clearly sloshed. So, you know, I got there in right. the end. Right, okay, good. What, what's good. interesting is I... I've I've managed all this change in life and everything fine, and I'm a, a happy, functional person. But without a doubt, what I when I'm in a when I was suddenly for the first time in my life the centre of quite a lot of attention. Not for the first time, I always got a bit of attention. I, I wasn't doing absolutely no gigs. I I had had bits of success and played a lot of gigs. Wait. You'd made a, a bunch of CDs before you'd gone anywhere near all of that. You made one with your brother, didn't you? Yeah, you, yeah, little you know. demos sort of things. But I, I'd certainly played a lot of weddings and I'd certainly learnt that the power of being a musician and, and attention stuff. But the sort of attention I got in Edinburgh, now when I get it, when I'm in a room where people are very aware of me being there and all that, I definitely drink to solve that. And it's not really I'm drinking away anxiety. I'm sort of just drinking by way of letting myself be excited by the fun of being the centre of attention rather than overthinking it and sort of worrying. I just go, oh, I'm, I'm at this fundraiser and the fact that I'm here is very exciting for these people because it represents this or the other. Um, and I'm just going to drink three wines really quickly and then just talk to everyone and that'll be fine. So I do use booze to manage now. I'm not a terrible drinker, but it's definitely medicine for me in a way that I hadn't learned back then that it could be. Um, and please drink responsibly. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to reference uh, the fact that I'm moving on to a prawn stir-fry. Uh-huh, right. Um, I'm eating the dry ramen now, and it's so nice. It's really good. That's the one. It's got shiitake and king oyster, roasted sweet potato, tofu and togarashi crisps. Oh, I love sweet potato. It's a good. It's a. It's a very fine, fine root vegetable. Mm. Um, the first time I came across Matilda, I was on a train, um, and there was a, a small child, maybe eight or nine years old, nine or ten, with their parent, and they were looking at um, sheet music. They were on their way to audition. Stratford to audition. Wow! Um, and I, I remember. That. And I said, well, can I just ask, what is this? And he said, oh, the RSC is doing a production of Matilda. I said, who's writing the music? I went, Tim Minchin. I went, I, I think I might have expleted in a way of saying, bloody hell, that's going to be great. Oh, uh, good. I mean, a mental, a mental note that I, I was going to have to find some way to get to Stratford to see it. Oh. In the end, of course, I didn't because it went 
everywhere. Mm. But I, I, one question, and I love Matilda. But here's a question, and I, I actually want you, wonder if you can help me with this. So Roald Dahl, I love his books. I love his writing. What do we do with this anti-Semitism? All right. So at the risk of getting myself in trouble, because people don't want privileged straight white men to um, wade into this too much for very good reason, because I don't have skin in the game. Well, no, I do. I do have skin in the game, of course, because I'm a member of our society and I care very much that we're the best possible society we can be. All religions, all cultures from the Egyptians, think the Greeks, certainly through all the Abrahamic religions, had the idea, unless I'm wrong, that at the end of one's life, you there's a scale. And your good deeds are weighed against your bad deeds. So every culture through history has understood implicitly that a human being is going to have been good and bad, and the greatest hope all, all God wants, or, you know, the gods want, is to know whether the good outweighed the bad. And it was a real sort of mathematical quantifying of that in, in their myths and in their stories. I find it interesting that we're suddenly at a time where we seem to be at a place where we think if a person's done something bad, that's it. You don't, it is not appropriate to weigh it up against their good. Now, the question that you have to ask is, well, how bad? Because there are things you, if you've killed a child with a fork, there's not much that will outweigh that, you know. That's a but, very specific piece of cutlery. But yeah, I, that's, well, you know. It's a, yeah, you can do a lot time, of damage with a fork. Only time will tell. Um, the question is, how much good outweighs what level of bad? But don't you think it's important that we do, we continue to understand that humans are flawed and the result of their culture? I mean, Roll presumably inherited stuff from his parents and from the culture around him. And like, I don't believe in evil, right? I don't believe people are good or evil. I think they're just the result of their genes and their environment. So the question of should we discard all the good Roll's done because of his anti-Semitism is, at the very least, an important question to ask. It should. I, I would be very uncomfortable. It's just like, get his books out of the libraries. No, I'd absolutely agree. I, I, you see, I, I, you're right. I, it's set against the background of cancel culture. Yeah. Now, how bad an anti-Semite was Roald Dahl? I suppose we should examine it. I mean, you said it was everywhere. How, you know, we probably need to weigh it against... The good. And then say, look, that was really bad. Let's, every time we teach Roald Dahl, talk about the fact that he had problematic beliefs and then talk about how he also was able to write these beautiful stories and use it as a jumping off point for a discussion on, you know, something like that. But the question is, to throw it back, I suspect there might be a few Roman Catholics in the world who might try that argument back to you for the Pope song, which is a, a, a beautiful piece of invective against the Pope for, you know, not intervening in cases of child abuse in the Catholic Church. It was invective. It was a polemic designed to use foul language to describe a person in order to set out people's sense of outrage so I could compare it to the outrage they seem unable to feel about passing around rapists. 
from parish to parish. So I think calling the Pope a motherfucker, that particular Pope, is less bad, quantifiably less bad, than not reporting a child abusive priest to the police. I'm sure of it. And I am very keen to make those points, you know. So come on. What are we doing? Are we holding ourselves to moral account? And, 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 and in talking about holding ourselves to moral account, I do not, I am not a moral purist. And I think this cancel culture thing, some people will say it's just a moral panic and it doesn't really exist. I think it is indicative of a habit of a generation or a form of communication where we seem to think that the goal is to not only be 100% woke and morally pure, but to have been born so, to have always been so, and to not really be given the chance to apologise and improve. And I think that's the fucking end times. If we can't, the very thing Jesus said, that I will forgive you, just come to me and I'll forgive you, that we just discard all of that for a pursuit of moral purity, which is just hypocrisy writ large, because, of course, every single one of those people asking for moral purity is an asshole. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Just a brief break from all the out-to-lunching chat to pip my wares, if you'll allow me the time, because now your favourite podcast comes with real physical stuff too. Stuff we've designed to make your kitchen life both more comfortable and more glamorous, your friends more envious. Or, of course, if you're a generous soul, you can give them away as Christmas gifts too. It's not one, but three bits of tasty merch that are here with me in my own kitchen. Firstly, this deliciously designed travel cup. Ah, that's fantastic for all your slurping needs on the move or at your desk. Now, I've lost count of the number of shirts I've stained in the kitchen, but it's a thing of the past. Since I started wearing this, that's the sound of the out-to-lunch apron in weighty, riveted denim. And in times like these, we all need to be good to ourselves, so why not invest in the light and soft out-to-lunch tea towel? Ah, yes, this is me stroking it. To see the range, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. But now, let's go back to the chat. You responded uh, to a review from one of my, uh, I'd say colleague, I, I don't think I've actually met him. I'm sure we've been in the same room, but you, a review by Phil Doust. A commercially colleague, yeah. yeah. Yeah, famously... 
I suppose a Guardian journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a critic, really. Um, although I've forsworn publishing negative reviews. When the restaurants reopened, I mean, people have misunderstood this. They go, so you're just going to give everything a good review? I said, no. If I come across a really terrible restaurant I can't say anything good about, I, I won't review it. Um, yeah. uh, you, you invited uh, Phil Douse to eat lumps of his own face while mm. watched, by his, watched by his children. And yeah. you're hoping yeah. somebody's loved funnier, one It's funnier in the song. To be it fair, I mean, exactly your delivery is impeccable, I but know. it's funnier in the song. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just trying to lay it out in front of you. Yeah. How are you with, with with that level of criticism? Because you say everyone has a an opinion. Yeah, I, I would say I'm terrible with criticism. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't bear it. And therefore I don't read it. And I, I'm not ashamed of not being able to bear criticism. You don't, I suppose you don't get to be as kind of I'm going to make this and that and the other without caring deeply about it. And the idea that someone, there's two types of criticism and they're both sort of equally hard. One is sincere analysis that says this work failed on its own terms. And that's heartbreaking because you wonder whether they're right. And the other is sort of casual contempt to try and make the writer look cooler than the people who like your work. And that makes you furious because disingenuous and I don't believe I learnt disingenuous appraisal because I think I'm very ingenuous in the way I work. You know, I'm not, I don't think a lazy, I don't think I deserve a lazy review. I don't think there's been many times where I've done a lazy piece of work that deserves a lazy review. So I, I, which isn't to say I think I'm immune from criticism. I think, don't worry, let me at, let me at me. I'll tear me to shreds. But I'm, I find it very hard to get up on stage if I've read something that says what I'm tearing my hair out and pouring my blood out for every night. Someone's gone, it's dumb. It's really hard to get up without that ringing in your head. So the answer is not to read it. You, you lived in London in yeah. Crouch End for quite yeah. a while. Yeah, for eight years. And, th- and then you were in L.A., but the decision to go back to Australia, was yeah. that basically saying, was that always the plan? Yeah. Did you think, I can't keep roaming the, the world? Yeah, it's, it was always the plan. I guess there was a point at which we were so settled and so in love with London that we thought maybe we stay here forever, even to the extent we sort of had our kids lined up to go to schools for high school. And, but the, the plan was not to stay there forever because we both come from big families and Perth families. And, um, and then the LA opportunity came up and we thought, oh, there's one more big adventure. And really it was like the timing. We thought we'll probably leave London after about, you know, before Violet turns 11 was the plan. And, um, and then this opportunity came up and I said to Sarah, let's just tear the Band-Aid off because this is going to be awful leaving London. We've got this opportunity, let's go have one more big adventure and in doing so, tear our roots out of London, you know, get it over and done with before it gets worse, harder to leave. Um, And we did, and we loved LA, and then we had to do it again. And uh, I'm I'm sure that moving home's a good idea, but it's not been that easy. You know, moving all the time, it does your head in. But you are, I understand, working on other musicals. 
there's a, at least another. I know you're not going to tell me what it is. Yeah, no. Right. Co- the, the musical I was sort of working on, COVID happened, and it kind of made me go, "Oh, that's not. It's it's quite a dark musical, and didn't feel like what I wanted to be working on." Then this album, you know, BMG signed me and wanted to make a much bigger deal of this album than I sort of thought. I didn't realise they they were like, this is going to be great. You need to make music videos and you need to do press. And I'm like, oh, it's just going to like sneak it out. So that happened. And then Andre died. And so Andre, who's the producer who took Matilda to, Andre Tijinsky, who took Matilda to the West End and then produced Groundhog Day, he and I have had grand adventures all over the world. He and Matthew Waters and me and Robin, all our creative team are very, very close. And Andre and I particularly, because I'm kind of the face of Matilda, I'm the guy that turns up to all the openings and he's the producer. We, we, we've had nights in Sydney hotels and New York disappointments and uh, he was also sort of the, the starting to guide us into this next project. And then a few weeks ago, he died very suddenly. And um, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, and I haven't probably have got a bit of uh, thinking about that still to come. But um, that project, I'm just like, okay, that's just going to sit for a while until I can get my head around all of that. Um, I'm writing. You know, I've written a new song for the Matilda musical movie. I'm not allowed. If I'm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about that, but it might not end up in it. But it's there. I've written a, a song for the credit t- uh, sequence of another animated film that Harry, who wrote Larrikins, is doing with Netflix. Uh, yeah, um, and they liked the way I sang it so much that they decided I should play a character in the movie. So I'm voicing another, um, uh, you know, so I, I'm so lucky because even though my tours and Matilda and everything shut down, I'm still able to be productive. Well, that's that's the brilliant thing. The, one... Last point. Uh, by the way, you've got some donuts down there. Don't forget. Yeah. Um, should I have them? I've got to get the other thing out of the I think it was Stephen Sondheim. It may also have been Lloyd Webber, who both opined that if you're going to write a musical, base it on a pre-existing piece of material, mm-hmm. which both Matilda and Groundhog Day <laughs> did, that, um, that musicals based on things that didn't exist tend to fail. Do you agree with that? No. What, what <laughs> were those punks know? Yeah, oh, no, Hamilton, you know, Hamilton was based on history and, and my next musical is based on a living person as well. Um, my other musical I'm considering, which I've had in my head for 20 years, um, is based on nothing but a short story I wrote when I was 18. Um, holy shit, malted caramel, chilli jam. Where are the actual donuts, you total arseholes? Are there? Um... <laughs> So, yes, I don't. I, I get that, you know, Steve might have said that, Andrew, that at a time when he was lamenting Sunday in the Park with George not going as well as he wanted or something, but he, he, his own work proves him wrong. But he probably, there is a correlation between pre-existing stories and success. You referred to him as Steve. Have you met him? Yeah. I, I did that deliberately like a wanker to Yeah, you did indicate. it beautifully indicate that I um, have met him. Yeah, I've met him a few times, had amazing sitting in his apartment, drinking schnapps and just hearing him rumble on and being sort of Uh, cross about Broadway. It's so beautiful that he's as angry about Broadway as I. He he is actually brilliantly furious, Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. Um, I read the whole of Finishing the Hat, his, his account, and it is so brilliantly dismissive of some of the biggest names in musical theatre. 
I mean, some of the he, stuff. Yeah, I don't think he ever saw either of mine. I think. But you uh, got to hang out with him anyway. Yeah, I really wanted him to see Groundhog Day. Um, I, he wouldn't have liked it. Ah, of course he wouldn't have liked it. But I think I solved some because he wanted to do Groundhog Day and he decided it was not um, suitable. And I kind of know what problems he identified. And it's part of why I wanted to do it because I believed that could be solved. I mean, a lot of the audience who saw Groundhog Day thought it was the best freaking thing they'd ever seen. And a few people didn't really get it or weren't looking for all the lovely Easter eggs in there, all the sub subtext. Um, but more than anything, uh, it's it's a little bit dark and a little bit dense and probably not quite ever going to be a hit in the in the. It's also what bothers not, me about that is that it was a hit at the old Vic. Yeah, so well, I think yeah, it won the Olivier. Thank and you. then it uh, didn't last quite as long as one might have wished on Broadway. It certainly lost all its money, yeah. Your, your view of it feels to me like it's tainted by what happened later. Yes, that, that's true, and it's a good note, and thank you, and that's good avuncular... Uh, um, <laughs> what you're implying is that shouldn't be the case, and that's absolutely right. And actually, yeah. deep down, I don't feel any sense that it's less of a success as a piece of art than Matilda, I, I personally like it better than Matilda. It presses more of my buttons. It's more challenging and has more subtext and is more philosophical. It's it's a deeper contemplation and it's silly and fun and Matthew's direction is incredible and the design and you know, one feels one has to manage the implied, you know, the tacit question, which is, well, why didn't that go as well? So I feel like I have to talk about that, but actually, I, Should we just I settle on the fact that Groundhog Day was great and leave it It's so great. And I, I'm not, <laughs> I never have a problem with the idea that I did not grow up thinking until the Americans like me, I won't have made any art. Uh, yeah. does not worry me. Well, look, as you start shoveling away the uh, buttermilk and popcorn ice cream mm-hmm. uh, and the donuts of truth and the mighty miso salted caramel of justice... Uh, <laughs> Tim, all that remains for me to say is thank you for staying in for lunch or in for dinner with me. You know, time zones. Uh, it works that way. <laughs> That's a mouthful of donuts. I really needed to eat during this interview. Uh, it was incredibly timely and generous. And um, send me the bill. Uh, well, there is no bill because they uh, beautifully, um, the team from Dingo Dining said, yeah, we'll do this one for free. If it's if it's him, oh. so uh, well, how gorgeous! I'm going to so ring him. Give, yeah, give him a call. Give him a call, Tim. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time, um, and good luck with the album, which is out November the twentieth. The part together on BMG. Thank you, Joe. Although often fabulously controversial, Tim thinks long and hard about everything he does, and that really came across in the chat we had and in the breadth of work he offers to the world. 
Tim feasted on modern Asian cuisine from Dingo Dining in Cottesloe, Perth, Western Australia, whilst I ate from a favourite of mine, the Thai restaurant Kawasan in Brixton, South London. And if you'd like to continue your travels as a gastronomic and cultural tourist, well, we have plenty more episodes for you to explore. You can get them wherever you found this podcast. And while you're there, oh, do rate, comment, share this, uh, give us five stars. It helps us to venture further into more restaurants and with more guests. Thank you so much. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, we continue our globe-trotting eating tour with the award-winning restaurateur, cookbook author and food activist. It's the head chef of Red Rooster in Harlem and the man who cooked the first state dinner for President Barack Obama. It's Marcus Samuelson. I started to cook for the Swedish royal family, you know, when I was in my 20s. And then I cooked for Clinton after that a lot. What, in the White House? Or, not uh, in the White House, but just for sometimes he traveled to Europe and sometimes he came into the restaurants. And still to this day, I cook for Clinton and he's, he's, he's incre- incredible. I actually cooked for him and Tony Blair in Stockholm once, which was amazing. 